I think what people forget is the, you know, the depth to which fossil fuels permeate society. You know, if you ran a reality TV program, you know, out on a desert island where all you, you could do anything you want as long as you didn't use fossil fuels, it'd be really dull. <laughs> To Sustainable 98. 98, crikey, blinking Moses. We are your friendly little environment podcast, all about people and the planet and the guff, and why, despite everything, we still try to find the odd reason to be cheerful. In we all. And, uh, shut up, and... What have we got coming up this week then, old Bean? Well, equally old Bean, if not old, slightly older Significantly bean. older Bean. Uh, yeah, not a margin of error, that, is it? You're an older Bean. We are this week talking to a very clever chap called David Hone, who is the author of a book called Putting the Genie Back, Solving the Climate and Energy Dilemma. And what's interesting about him then, Old? Well, what's interesting about him, Dave, is that he also is the chief climate change advisor for a little company you may have heard of called Shell. Yeah. Bloody hell, are we allowed to do that? I mean, we haven't in the previous 97 episodes, but, you know, yeah. Crikey. So this is a radical departure for us. Now shut up and listen, listeners, because we did this one in a spirit of goodwill and good tidings to all men, right? So what we've done is, and women, except we're all men. Uh, so what we did was, right, we gave this bloke a fair hearing. So he works for Shell, but we didn't, like, he didn't come into our babble suite and we didn't throw potatoes at him. We wanted to hear what he had to say and what's in his book. So if you think this is just going to be 40 odd minutes of us throwing potatoes at the man from Shell, you are mistaken, because it's not. We're nice. So Yes, and I, I suspect that he wouldn't have hung around for 40 odd minutes to have potatoes thrown at him. <laughs> so no. it was, yeah, look, it's he didn't have to come on to this show and talk to a bunch of yogurt weaving tree huggers like us. Uh, so it's good of him that he did. Uh, and he is a climate change advisor. He cares about this stuff. That much is clear. Clearly, we've had things to say about Shell in the past, uh, and David knew that, and good on him for, for coming to talk to us. So this is our interview with David. It is unashamedly a bit longer than most of our interviews. Not that long, but a bit longer because this stuff is complicated and because David has worked in the energy sector for a long time and knows how it works in a way that we don't know how it works. So do stick with it. It is an interesting, fascinating insight, but it is a bit long. Just the usual disclaimer, we do work for environmental charities. That is, me and Ol do work for environmental charities. David Hone doesn't. Um, but these are very much uh, our own views. I think even David's own views as well. So if you've got any beef with anything what is said, take it up with me or him or him. But don't take it up with anyone for whom we work. Although if you want to take things up with Shell, you know, feel free. All right, let's, um, let's see how this goes. So, hello, David. Hello. 
Thank you very much indeed for coming to speak to us, giving us your time on this freezing winter freezing. evening. Climate change. <laughs> Need a bit more climate change. <laughs> well done, there. You've got yeah. it in there. Um, you have just written, uh, recently written this excellent book, Putting the Genie Back. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about it, what its message is and, uh, and, uh, and how it came about? So the message of the book is really a, a, a down-to-earth story on how we have to deal with the climate issue. Uh, I think the message is that we can, that it's possible to resolve this problem. Uh, it's going to take time to do so. But it's not going to happen without some big changes in society. Uh, the book came about from um, from my blogs originally. Uh, they, I have a blog that's been running for about eight years, and um, it's an aggregation of many of those blogs, but obviously retold and rewoven together to to, to give a, a sensible story. So what's the what's the gist of it? I mean, it's, you talk about a big challenge. So climate change bad. Is climate change worse than we think, or is it just bad enough as it is? It's not worse than we think. I think it's it's the reality of it that that I really try and bring home. You know, there's way too much argument about the science when the science is clear and has been clear for for over a hundred years. I mean, I start off on page one with a great snippet I found from a, a newspaper in Australia that talks about the coal consumption and that the emissions from coal will eventually cause the global temperature to rise. And that was published in 1912 in a country newspaper, you know, not that far from where I was born. So, you know, the science is not an issue. I think the, the politics has made the science an issue when the science never was an issue. So there's a, there's a sort of a reality check on the science and then you, you need to get into thinking about the science, what are the solutions to this problem? A and that's really how the book uh, takes shape and where it goes to. So one of the things I took from, from reading the book, um, which I really enjoyed, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, I very much enjoyed it, um, was this sense that there's a sort of cool, hard reality in what you're saying about the, the, the scale of the energy industry, the extent to which fossil fuels across the global economy are completely embedded. And it seems like the primary solution you're, um, you're putting forward revolves around this technology known as CCS, carbon capture and storage. What is that and, and why is it going to work? So it's one of the solutions, but it's the pivotal bit to actually completely solve the problem. You just have to back up a little bit first and recognise that the solution to the, the climate issue is not just about deploying lots of renewable energy. That's one of the thing that's, things that's going to happen. But we could end up in a world where we've deployed lots of renewable energy and it's supplying lots of our needs and there's still lots of emissions from all sorts of other things that take place around the world that, that we need. Um, and those processes may not go away as quickly as, for instance, we're replacing you know, electricity generation with solar and wind. So what we're looking at, like agriculture or what? But even big industrial processes. Right. Take your iPhone. You know, you, your iPhone has 75 elements from the periodic table inside it. 
<laughs> you know, that's three quarters of the periodic table. And these things are hard to find and hard to mine. And they come from all over the world, uh, from, you know, mines in, in many, many countries. And they eventually come together and make your iPhone. And you, you sort of take it for granted. But the, the it's not that this is a high-emitting activity. It's just that there's billions of these things. And but when you add them all up, you have still a world of high emissions, even if you've replaced much of the electricity production with solar and wind, for example. And, and so all of these other processes are going to need some attention. And that's what I've tried to raise the profile of in the book as well, that you know, fossil fuels play a very big role in the global economy. They're not just there for electricity production. And that as we move forward, many of these existing uses will continue because they just aren't simple alternatives. Uh, they may well be in you know, many decades forward. But this problem has to be solved in the next sort of 40 to 50 years. So let's get this straight. If I was bad, my descendants would rule the entire universe. Maybe, maybe. But would you be happy? So you end up having to capture the carbon dioxide that comes from the remaining uses from fossil fuels. And we can do that today. Shell does that in a facility in Canada where we're capturing a million tonnes of carbon dioxide per annum. It's from a hydrogen manufacturing facility, not from an electricity production facility. And that carbon dioxide is stored back geologically about three kilometres below the surface. How do we do that then? What do we just... We, we talked about this only in episode 73, when we talked about geoengineering. Take your word for it. <laughs> is it just like a hoover that sort of sucks, literally sucks the carbon out of the process? Or how does it work? There are a variety of processes, but the basic one is... And this, this happens here in the UK today. Natural gas comes out of the North Sea. That natural gas has a little bit of carbon dioxide in it as well. Most natural gas does. So that carbon dioxide is stripped out of the natural gas before it's put into the grid. And what happens is that the gas stream is passed over a liquid stream. The liquid stream um, dissolves the carbon dioxide. The liquid stream is then heated. It releases the carbon dioxide. And then at the moment, of course, that, that's vented to the atmosphere, as is the, as is the case in pretty much every natural gas production facility in the world. But it's only quite a small amount. <laughs> so that same technology has been reapplied um, for gases that would otherwise be vented to the atmosphere in industrial facilities. That carbon dioxide is then compressed. It, it converts to a, a, what's called a supercritical liquid and it's injected into the subsurface in exactly or exactly the opposite way in which oil and gas are extracted. Well, so we put it back into the holes that we got the oil and gas out of first time round. In some cases, you can put it back in the holes where the oil and gas was, uh, and that was a plan for a facility we were looking at here in the UK. Um, or you look for geological structures that are very similar to those that you where you find oil and gas, and you inject it and, and it gets trapped in the subsurface in the same way natural gas was trapped there millions of years ago and stayed there all that time. And then you 
gaffer tape it up and that's all right. Not quite so. gaffer tape it up, <laughs> no. Uh, so I, 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 I'm not a production geologist, but you would. You, I, I think they use concrete and things to plug the holes so that it's not gaffer it's, uh, it's completely sealed, yeah. And are people worried about it staying there or worried about it not staying there, rather? I mean, that... That would be my first question, particularly if I lived above a place you were going to do this or just from a climate perspective. Or if I did it with gaffer tape. Especially if Dave did it with gaffer tape. Yes, exactly. So some people are worried about this, but the geologists and the people that do it in the field are not worried about it. It'll stay there. They're confident it'll stay there. Confident will stay there. And, And they're confident because... If all of this slowly leaked out of time, out over time, then we wouldn't be finding natural gas today. You know, the natural gas that's sitting in these very similar geological formations has been there for a very, very long time, trapped permanently. And um, that's exactly what happens to the carbon dioxide. The reason that it's not happening is because there's no immediate economic incentive for anybody to do it. It's too expensive. It's not a question of being too expensive. It's a question of why would you do it? Why would you incur an additional cost in your process when nobody is asking you to do that? Okay. So even if it costs very little... You know, cost minimization, which is a you know a constant push by industry, would would stop this. Um, and so you have to introduce a policy framework that requires this to happen or incentivizes this to happen. And the simplest way of doing this is something which is now appearing in many parts of the world is to put a price on carbon emissions, carbon dioxide emissions. And that's a fairly simple policy approach that works. When the price reaches a certain point, it will bring in carbon capture and storage. And in fact, the Shell facility in Canada, its operation is underpinned by the carbon price that exists in the Alberta economy. This all sounds good, particularly if you are a company that has business models based around fossil fuels. So with my cynical hat on, which I'm going to put on, doesn't this just enable fossil fuel companies to carry on burning fossil fuels? I mean, isn't this exactly the sort of thing that a big energy company would say is the answer? No, I, that's not the purpose of that. this approach. So we've already seen, for instance, that technologies like solar PV, like offshore wind, onshore wind, are replacing coal, natural gas and oil in various um, applications. So they're replacing coal, for instance, in power generation. But you don't solve the problem entirely with that approach. And at the same time, Yes, it is a technology that the oil and gas industry can bring to the table, which also allows it to continue to use and sell 
oil and gas. And uh, that shouldn't be an issue. You know, the issue is the emissions of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. The issue is not entirely how we get our energy. So a bit in your book that I found very interesting was when you discuss how this isn't new, this, this whole idea of capturing carbon and storing underground has been around for a long time, as long as people have been at the international level, you know, considering how to tackle climate change. So could you just outline why it is that it's not really happening at scale? I mean, you talked about the project in Canada that, that Shell are involved in, but my understanding is, you know, that we're, we're not talking about projects that are going to make a difference at the it moment. It is one of a few. Yes, okay. that's true. So it is an old set of technologies from the refining industry, from the production industry. And also, you know, in the United States, there's some 3,000 kilometres of carbon dioxide pipelines. And carbon dioxide is captured from a variety of places and actually injected into the ground to increase oil production. Um, and that's one of the common, that's one of the common uses of carbon dioxide today. Now, in the, in the Shell facility in Canada, it's just stored and nothing else happens. Um, so all of the pieces are there to do this. So what's it like? I got quite, I want to know. I want to know what it's like working at Shell, particularly given that you are undoubtedly passionate about solving climate change. I've been reading your stuff for years. Um, it's safe to say, <laughs> I'm looking at all to see if you, I'm going to say it's safe. it's safe to say that we're sometimes a bit mean about Shell on this podcast. And all, all, it's not just oh, Shell. Oh, just Shell. It's not just Shell. <laughs> um, and so are lots of people that we know, and so are lots of greeny, tree-huggery types. So, like, is this just some sort of cartoonish thing where it's assumed that Shell are this big, horrible oil company? Or what's it actually like when you work there? Well, I, I've worked in Shell my whole career, and it's offered me lots to do, lots of interesting stuff. You know, I've been everywhere from working in oil refineries to trading crude oil in, in the international markets to attending COPs for, you know, the, the, the climate change conferences. Um, so quite a varied career, really, and, and always interesting. I don't think I could do the job that I currently have, which is the, the, the climate change advising job in Shell, if the company wasn't serious about the issue. I, I couldn't personally do it. Uh, I just couldn't. But what I've seen in the, you know, over the years that I've been involved in climate change, and, you know, it's, it's quite a number of years now, I, that's unusual in Shell. You sort of go into a job and four or five years later you're off doing something else. But this, is, this job has progressed and changed as the company has progressed and changed on the issue. So I came in when the climate change team was one. <laughs> yeah. Me, yeah. that's right. Christmas parties must have been a bit limited. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, they were. Yes. Cheers, David. Cheers, David. <laughs> Dwight, want me to get you some eggnog? No, thanks. I'll just have another Dumatrol. But that changed, you know, and then the climate change, then we, then we had, you know, a, a whole climate change team was created in the mid-2000s, uh, 2006, I think. Um, and then that ran for a, pe a period, sort of changing the, the way in which the company dealt with the issue. 
focusing more on the emerging policies that were coming out of government, so like carbon taxes and things like that. And then uh, with our current CEO, who's, I think, been in the job now four years, three or four years, um, there's been another big step up. And it's really moved into the, the longer-term strategy of the company. And in fact, this week, he announced, um, both here in London and in, and in New York, that the company's overall carbon footprint of the portfolio would reduce over time as the global shift to um, alternative energies and, the, and, the, and meeting the Paris uh, goals took place. So in, by about 2035, it would be 20% lower, and by 2050, I think it was 50% lower. So, you know, that's a big shift in an oil and gas company's portfolio. But do you see where people are coming from when they are frustrated that this stuff has taken quite a long time in their view to to get going like it's not as you said you know the the science has been clear for a very long time the need to drastically reduce emissions has been clear for a very long time it doesn't seem like oil companies have been at the vanguard of of trying to do that so do do you see where people are coming from when they're frustrated that okay it's good good words now but i think it's i i think it's an understandable frustration and I, you know, you can see why the, the fingers get pointed. But I think what people forget is the, you know, the depth to which fossil fuels permeate society. Uh, you know, 80% of our energy needs come from fossil fuels. Everything you do, buy, consume, has fossil fuels in the value chain. You know, if you ran a reality TV program, you know, out on a desert island where all you, you could do anything you want as long as you didn't use fossil fuels, it'd be really dull because <laughs> there, there, there would be nothing you could do. In, in today's society, you know, you've got a co- cup of coffee in your hand. Everything in that cup of coffee, including the cup, has its origins with fossil fuels. And that's, you know, that's just where we're at um, it's not an excuse. It's not, uh, and I think that's that's part of the reason is that the, you know this the ubiquitous nature of the of this energy source has meant that it's been very very slow to get going. I think the other big issue is that for you know we've got a lot of countries in the world who are still developing and, and developing quite rapidly. And their natu- the natural inclination is to turn to coal for development. And I talk about this in the book. Um, and I think, you know, here we are in the early parts of the 21st century. We can't really offer a developing country a pathway forward to full industrialization that doesn't involve coal. You can generate electricity from mm. solar... But try and build the roads and the bridges. Make your concrete. Make your concrete, mm. exactly. Try and, try and manufacture steel. One of my favourite stories, which, which is also in there, is about the, the refrigerators. 
And it stems from an article that was in the BBC a couple of years ago about a guy in India who bought a refrigerator and it was the first fridge in the village. And it made me look into this a bit deeper. And, you know, India then, a couple of years ago, was where China was um, in the late 1990s. And in the interim, China built 400 million refrigerators. And India is going to do the same thing. It may not do it quite as quickly. So building that requires a lot of stuff. It's a lot of aluminium, a lot of steel. It's chemical plants to make refrigerants. And then you have to have electricity, and that electricity has to run all day because refrigerators don't like it if they're, you know, if they're left off for long periods of time. Um, they're, they're heavier duty than lights and, mm. uh, and things that you have in your house. So try and do all of that without fossil fuels, but, but in the, you know, really in many countries it's without coal, and it's hard and it's expensive, and it may not actually be possible. Ah. And so, <laughs> at least today, you know, I, technology's moving forward. I, you know, I, there's no question about that. So the issue is try and do that today, and you can't. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. And so oh dear. a lot of developing countries look at this issue and go, well, hang on. <laughs> You know, what about us? And it's all very well to put solar cells on houses in villages in Kenya. Great thing to do. But it doesn't give them a refrigerator. And that's, you know, that's what they're looking at. They're, they're looking at all of these goods and services that we take for granted and thinking, yeah, that's, that's a great life. We want at least some of that as well. Uh, and these industries don't appear overnight. You know, the solar industry has been going since the mid-60s. Now, in the mid-60s, solar was used in very specific applications, mainly satellites and a few other things like that. But the technology existed. 50 years later, it's at 1.3% of the electricity system. Now, it's growing rapidly. There's no question about that. 1.3%. And electricity is one-fifth of the total energy that we use. So that's after 50 years, right? Now, we can go much faster than that, and solar is you know, growing at 20, 30, 40% per annum, but from a very small base. And so it is going to take time. And in the interim, you, you can't not use energy... And so all of this has to somehow combine and, and keep the whole system below 2 degrees C. And that's a tough ask. But that's, that's the, the issue that's sitting in front of everybody. So you're sat in Shell and... Greenpeace climb something or Friends of the Earth say something cross. So I've been in a hotel in Durban at a cop when they climbed the, <laughs> they climbed over the roof of the hotel, yes. <laughs> so I'm right there. Alright, you're in Durban, there's someone climbing over your hotel yep. who are cross about Shell. Yep. Do you care? Like, do, 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 do Shell 
are they bothered by that sort of stuff? Are we are we environmentalist yogurt weavers relevant or just hilarious or genuinely, you know, a kind of threat to how you go about your business? So I think there's there's a range of answers to that. <laughs> by the way, it was neither of us. No, no, no. But <laughs> just checking, you know that. So there's lots of NGOs who we work really productively with. Um There was an announcement, I think it was about two or three weeks ago now, where Shell and a number of oil companies are working with environmental defense, big US NGO, to really get to grips with the issue of methane release into the atmosphere. So methane is a much more powerful greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. Natural gas that comes out of the ground is methane. Some of it leaks at the production point, maybe in a pipeline, even potentially when you turn the burner on at home and you don't light it quickly enough. That's a little bit of methane into the atmosphere. Yep. So, you know, that's an example of where we're working with NGOs very productively to, uh, to try and solve these problems and address them. Um, and that's actually the, the larger part of how we go about talking with NGOs. There's no point fighting with people. It's better to listen to them and try and solve the problem with them. So you haven't got a, a dartboard with a sort of the face of the boss of Greenpeace on it? Or, no, or, no, 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 no. You can make you one. I know lots of these people in these organisations. I've been around this you know, for many years. Some of them have been in organisations that we work with and then they go off into other organisations and... You know, they play a different role. Um, Sometimes it's a bit like going from, you know, being the villain in one stage play to the hero in another. You know, that's that's you play the role or you you perform the tasks that you've got at the time. I think, you know, that sort of climbing over hotels, it gets the media focused. Um, I don't think it necessarily helps get the issue solved. But how do you how do you react to it internally? What what's the shell? Is it just kind of here's stuff that happens? You know, this is part and parcel of it, or is it more of a dramatic? Oh, we need to deal with this. I think on the day it's well, this stuff happens. Just let leave them to it. Yeah. Longer term, it triggers a. A reaction. And, and it's not one of the no, it's not one of those reactions where you can say, "Oh, they did that, and therefore this happened." It's because you know what what you're seeing what you're seeing from the guy who climbs over the hotel is a very visible version of a frustration that is more widespread in mm. society. Yep. It's just that it appears <laughs> extremely visibly in that one place. And therefore, it's a, it's a signal that, you know, this, this issue is, is whatever that issue might be, whether it's climate or something else, you know, gets more attention. All we got to do is... I can't work out, David, 
if you're optimistic or not. I can't work it out. Sometimes I feel like you're saying, um, the, the, here's how, you know, we can solve climate change, but we have to do it like this. And sometimes I feel like you're saying, oh, I don't know if we're going to do it. It's too much. Fossil fuels are too embedded. And, you know, the Paris Agreement says we've got to keep temperatures to two degrees. So do you, do you actually think we're going to do it? And how optimistic are you really about all this stuff? Well, I think you have to be optimistic, otherwise... You turn into oil. It gets a bit depressing, yeah. Um, I, I've been struggling with my, my climate optimism of late, just to give you that right. context. But So I think it's, a different, it's a, perhaps a different type of optimism. Um, so I'm, I'm generally a techno-optimist. Uh, that's just... Perhaps it comes from being an engineer. I, I don't know. I think, yes, it does. Probably. <laughs> uh, so I think, you know, all, all the technologies and all the pieces are there to solve this issue. So from that perspective, you can go, can I build an energy system that has no emissions? And the answer is yes. Uh, might take a while, but the answer is yes. Then there's a question of somebody has to pay for it and... You know, I think people in the UK, broadly, we can afford to pay for it. Uh, then you go to somewhere like South Africa, which has most of its electricity coming from coal, and you think, well, some people can pay for it, but a lot of people can't afford to. That's, you know, e even a small incremental cost on electricity has, has a bad impact. Um, so then you start to see the politics of this play out. And the politics is all about people's well-being. That's, that's it. It's, not, it's really not about anything else. Because cost ultimately feeds down to people's well-being. And, you know, I think all governments want a better life for, for their constituents. You can have net zero emissions... And you can have a better life for all, can, all the people on the planet. Um, I think the, the, the challenge in all of that is now doing it in time to get to, to, to limit it to two degrees C. And I think there's a, there's a distinct possibility of overshoot. But even the overshoot can be addressed through technology. You know, if you can build air capture of carbon dioxide on a large enough scale, you can wind back the clock a bit. But really, yeah, all of this should have started 20 or 30 years ago in earnest. And it has been left a little bit late. David, thank you very, very much for coming to talk to us um, and sharing all of that insight, uh, particularly from, from your book, which is called... Putting the Genie Back, Solving the Climate and Energy Dilemma. Very good. And I have read it. Uh, uh, I, I did really enjoy it. It's also, I think, the first couple of chapters are some of the clearest uh, explanations of the, the climate problem that I've ever read. So I, I do implore people to read it. Uh, where can people find it? And, um, and where can they follow you for more information? So it's published by Emerald Publishing. So their website has it. 
and probably the easiest place to get it because it's not one of those books that sort of fills the bookstores, the physical <laughs> bookstores, is um, either Emerald Publishing or Amazon. And uh, if people want to stay in touch with you, see what you're saying, uh, what's the, you said you had a blog? Yeah, I have a blog that's, uh, that, that you can get to through the, the Shell website or just Google David Hone blog climate or climate change blog and uh, you'll find it pretty quickly. Great. Thank you so much for coming in, David. See you soon. Thanks. Oh, Ooh. Dave. Well. Well, then. We talked to Shell. We did talk to Shell. Shell talked back. I think we got away with it. Yeah. A bloody interesting bloke. Um, I want to know what you thought about it. That's what I want to do. Um, what do you think about it? Well, I wasn't just saying it. I did think his book is good. I would recommend reading it. It. I mean, it seems to spend a lot of time going, this is hard listen, environment folk, you don't understand how big fossil fuels are in the world, and I do. He did say a lot of that in the interview. Yeah, yeah. and this stuff is is not going away anytime soon, and here's all the reasons why. Now, if I worked for Shell or an oil company, I would say this stuff is not going away anytime soon for all sorts of reasons, one of which may be that it isn't going away anytime soon. But, you know, there's other reasons that it's in your interest to say that, so... Yeah, you know, take that as a pinch of salt. Do you know what I wish I'd asked him? What do you wish you'd ask him? I wish I'd asked him what other people in Shell think of him and his team. Yeah. You know, there's all, in every organisation, there's that one team that, you know, all right, we allow them to have the office space, but, you know, we don't invite them to the party. Is that them? Or are they the, like, the crazy new kids on the, on the Shell block who are doing all of the interesting stuff? And, the, yeah. you know, the oil men of the 60s are actually going out of vogue. I wish I'd asked him that, but I didn't. Maybe he'll listen to this and let us know. You can imagine, like, someone over in a bit of Shell doing something that looks like it would be bad for the climate and coming up to him and going, David, is this bad for the climate? And him going, yes. And they go, oh, <laughs> and sort of going away or something like that. <laughs> um, and then doing it anyway. Um, the, the interesting thing that I thought was this. So I think... Um, uh, I've been reading some interesting stuff about how quickly change can happen, right? And I think that, you know how, like, everything... You know when you see counters of how bad everything is? Mm. And those counters get quicker and quicker. Mm. And, like, the, every environmental graph ever is, like, time on one axis and bad things on the other. <laughs> and, like, that exponentially going up. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there's a flip side to that as well, right? Which is the reason all them things is happening and getting worse and worse is because there's, like, more people doing more stuff with more economic activity talking to each other quicker, selling each other quicker stuff, right? Yeah. Flip side of that is there's more people coming up with ideas and talking to each other and uh, changing the world like really, really fast in possible impossible yeah. ways, right? So I think that the only the major challenge I would put to any big old company that goes, oh, it'll take too long, it's too slow, is possibly, but stuff's getting much, much, much quicker. And like innovation is really, really quick. You see all them graphs on solar power, like what all the big energy companies have gone, oh, well, solar power, power maybe doubled by this time next year. And it's always like eight times higher. Mm. Like, oh, and, and these things are really taking off on a kind of exponential sort of level. So I don't know if it's true 
that we have it's going to take years and years and years for this stuff to take off. I have a suspicion it's actually going to be far quicker than that, not least because everyone wants it to happen. And then, you know, the idea that you'll have had companies sitting around in the early part of the 21st century saying, oh, it'll take too long, it'll be too slow, they'll look silly. And I don't, the only reason it matters is because, like, if you're going out there saying you shouldn't try and go any faster because it will take too long, you might help make it yeah. go slower, if yeah. you see what I mean. So you've got to talk it up, else it's not going to happen. Yes. Yes. Exactly. I think uh, that is the kind of critique of his book that I had as well. I was like, all right, well, taking today as the as your, your point of analysis, yeah, maybe we have got a long way to go. But what what does saying that achieve? Like, doesn't don't we need hope and ambition and relentless drive towards that goal that he definitely shares? You know, more more than we need a kind of cool pessimistic realism so well one of the things it achieves i mean look one way or the other what it achieves is it keeps shelling business for a bit longer that's what it does now you can be as cynical or as uncynical about that as you like and we did ask him about it but uh it is in the interests of big oil companies like shell to say we're going to be around for a while so make us part of the solution that's all i'm saying So that is just about it for another episode of Babel 98 in the can. Oh my goodness, we're getting close to the big ton. Thank you very, very much, Dave, for your magnificent babbling as ever. And thank you, of course, to David Hone for coming and chatting to us. And not having potatoes thrown at his head. Thank you, as always, to the legendary Dickie Moore for the music that starts and ends and intertwinkles this podcast. And, of course, thank you all for whatever it is you do. If you would like to... Oi, oi, oi. What? Thank you to Thierry in France. Oh, wee wee for saying hello, I'm in France and I listen. Hello, Thierry, mate. And thank you to Kelly in Canada for doing likewise. We do love to hear from our transcontinental, international listeners about the Babble's reach and we are big in Canada. If you would like to tell us what you thought of the show, particularly this one, uh, but, you know, in general, you can get in touch with us uh, at email, which is hello <laughs> at sustainababble.fish. Find us how, on Facebook. I how bad at this you are. I can't, I can't keep it <laughs> Yet. Find us on Facebook, just search Sustainababble, or go on Twitter and look for us at The Babble Wagon. And we would love you to go to your favourite podcast medium of choice and give us a lovely, big, healthy review because it all helps. Thanks. All right, that is just about it. We'll be back next week for Babble 99, Luft Balloons and Flakes and. Uh, flakes? Yeah, you know, 99 flakes. Oh, is that still a thing? Yeah. Do the kids have flakes? Yeah. I thought they did. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.